Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can find the show online at buildingthefutureshow.com or follow me on Twitter at Building Show. You can also find it on iTunes, Stitcher, and YouTube. I'm excited to announce that I'm now a brand ambassador for the Business Rock Summit in Manchester, England, April 21st and 22nd, where Steve Wozniak is headlining. More details at business-rocks.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Greg Oldring, founder of Mailout and co-founder of Inkedit. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kevin. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks uh, for doing this. Um, I guess in full disclosure, maybe we should talk that we used to work together and that you were my boss and we worked together for a number of years <laughs> on a couple. On, on Actually, I worked on both products. So uh, yes, it's pretty cool and I'm excited to have you on the show because uh, you have lots of good advice and stories from the past and uh, I'm excited to have you on the show. So uh, maybe before we kind of talk about Mailout and and inked it. Let's talk about kind of where you grew up and how you got into technology. Sure, sure. Well, I, I grew up in, in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Uh, so unless someone's a hockey fan, they might not have heard of Edmonton. Uh, but it's pretty far north and west in Canada. So it's not, not, not generally speaking a hotbed of technology, but uh, we've actually got a really, pretty cool startup scene here these days. Um, and how I ended up getting into technology was kind of funny, actually. Like I, I had started into business. It was a really down economy when I was in university and then in the nineties. So oil prices, oil is what dominates the economy here in, in Alberta and oil prices were really low. There's no jobs to be had. So I helped a friend start a business. Um, and from that business, I had another friend who had started the first internet service provider in Alberta. Interesting. And yeah, he wanted me to come and he was like nagging me all the time to come and see this, the internet, <laughs> this, well, back then it was the information superhighway, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> so, which was, which was touted as free long distance. That was what people would, how they describe on the news on television, like what this internet thing is, it's the, or this information superhighway. It's like free long distance because nobody had like a mental model of what this thing would be. Sure. So I was appropriately skeptical, especially because my friend, uh, he's a good guy. He's a great guy, but I was like, you're full of crap. This is definitely dumb. Um, but it would, would apply to this other business that, that I'd helped start. And, um, if it, you know, free long distance anyways. So anyways, I go to my buddy's office. This is October. Wow. This is actually, it was October 94. So like 21 years ago, Wow, which seems really weird to say. Uh, and he shows me a web page and, you know, it was a, a web page from Switzerland on his you know, 14 inch CRT <laughs> monitor. And it blew my mind like this. I, I saw this expecting free long distance. I got this web page thing and, uh, and it just set my mind spinning. I was like, this is going to change everything. And so from there I ended up, um, creating another business kind of, kind of related to this first one that I'd helped start, um, which was a parts locator service for heavy truck parts. Uh, and then this other business was for classified advertising for construction equipment. And when we started it, I can, you know, getting back to the question, how I got into technology, the, it came when, when we set up a web server, because of course we had to like set up a web server in our own 
basement sort of thing. Sure. Um, cause you know, that's just how things were done back then. Um, with the web server came uh, a book on how to set things up and how it all worked and so on. And I had one chapter on HTML. Then I read that chapter and said, Oh, I could do this. Didn't understand anything else too much, but I could figure that out. And, you know, view sourced from there, looked at how people were making these web pages and, and uh, just kept learning and learning. I, I think that's how a lot of people learned in the early days. I remember doing the same thing. Is just like I was like, oh, it's really cool how this guy's doing whatever, right? Like a, the blade yeah. tag or the marquee or something. And you're like, yeah. I want to do that. And then you just like how did, source and took it and yeah. put it on your site, right? How did they make those blinking lights <laughs> go on the sideline? Yeah, <laughs> on that blink tag. You know, I, it was funny too because I got to tell that story of you know, reading that book. Of course, the the the, the server software we had was O'Reilly and Associates website. Really? And so I got to I got to tell Tim O'Reilly that story of like, yeah, you know, you were the, the book that your company did was like how I got into this. And uh and he he's like, oh wow, you know what? Uh Mark Cuban told me the same thing. <laughs> he just tells me this great story about Mark Cuban. Like, yeah, I'm like exactly the same guy. Yeah. That, that, yeah, yeah. You're like, we're pretty close. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're right. So that was, that was really cool. That's awesome. Was that when we were in Vegas? Was that the first time it you was. met him? Yeah, that was a, it was at like a speaker dinner for uh, in Vegas. Right, right. This, uh, the Future Web Apps show, which is a great, that was a great conference. That actually. was actually, cool. we, had a, we had like, we learned a lot and we had a really fun time actually. Yeah, it was fun. Um, you know, because it was everything was kind of new and exciting and stuff. Like when you do a startup, it's always so fun. Totally. But uh, but we, I learned a lot too. And I was, uh, yeah, I was saying like the one of the the sad things of what I learned is learning things the hard way. I did like the worst demos at that conference because I'd never really done software demos. Oddly, um, really. So yeah, you know, I'd never really done demos. I would have done a couple, but. I mean, I've tended to avoid them for the most part um, because it's, you know, a software demo is usually, I mean, it's it's what it is. Like, like watching someone use Microsoft Word, it's it's boring. Sure. <laughs> There's no way to really make a software demo that exciting unless you've got like weird fanboys, right? Um, so so that yeah, I hadn't done a lot of that in the past. I'd I'd always done selling where. When I was demonstrating my product, I would actually be walking other people through it over the phone, typically. So they would be they'd be driving, and that's kind of how I would like to to do selling, typically. And then selling was more one on one. But I, you know, I hadn't done certainly stuff up on stage where you know the whole like presenting to a large group at one time. My software just hadn't done that before. So sure. I really sucked at it, but that's all right. <laughs> no, I, I don't Live think it was as bad as you thought it was. Like I, I thought people got something out of it, and I. And like I remember sitting in the audience and watching that, but it is interesting. Awesome. <laughs> I'm just hard on myself. <laughs> no, sure. Yeah, well, totally. I think everybody is, right? Yeah. But it is interesting that you mentioned about doing not really doing demos, and you're kind of right. Like the more I think about it, too, it is awkward, kind of just showing somebody. It's a lot easier to kind of walk them through it and kind of watch them use the software instead of, you know, you just kind of. Because they don't remember, right? Whatever you yeah. just fly, because you fly through, you know the software, you know where to go, you know where you're going, and it's interesting to watch them. And I think that's what's so fascinating, almost about user testing. Yeah, oh, user testing is great for that. Is watching people 
watching people sort of fumble along and uh, I mean it's very humbling is what you when you I mean a demo you polish it up right and everything works all smoothly and there's no surprises to stuff when you when you do some user testing and you can watch the video of somebody using your stuff the way that they actually use it instead of the way you think that they use it it's just it's it just guts you sometimes like oh how did they not notice that this that's the place to start, right? And they flounder around, but um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, that's pretty powerful. But the other thing about it, I find with getting people to drive, like the, whoever, whoever you're speaking to, if they're using the software instead of me showing them, there's a different dynamic there. And I think it's something about, I don't know, like in education, people who are educators, I could tell you more about it, but that you learn more, you, you retain more when you're making the decisions. Like you, you have to be paying attention to, you know, finding the, the button to start like creating content. Let's say, or um, it's just cognitively you're you're present in it in a very different way than if you're just watching a screen because so, you're actively participating instead of just passively watching. And people get a lot more out of that than uh, than just watching a video. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. So maybe let's get to know you a little bit more and talk about sure. kind of what did you take in school then? I took two years of science, okay. a year of art, and then I started a business degree. I started into the faculty of business uh, here at the University of Alberta. And so I got credit for a couple of years. And so my first year of business was technically my third year of the degree. Right. And then in between like that summer was when I helped my friend start the, that, uh, that other business, um, where, and the reason why I did that is because I had nothing on my resume that would have helped me get a job as far as I could tell <laughs> nothing to do with business. And he was, I worked at like summer camps and had knee surgeries that had me laid out for months at a time and things like that. So, so I wanted to do something that would be, you know, I would think would help me get a job and you know, I could, the prospects were pretty grim back then to, to get a, you know, something to do with marketing, let's say, or even sales, I could dig a ditch. So, so I helped my friend start something. Sure. So, so was that the, the company you would eventually sold to Trader or was that a, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, so, so no, that, not the one that, that I helped them start. So the one that I helped them start is called PartsLink. Okay. And it, it's you know, like say the parts locator service for heavy truck parts. Right. And uh, I did like three thousand cold calls that summer. Um, really. And back then it was a fax-based thing, and so sort of classified advertising between these uh, construction or sorry, uh, like heavy truck salvage yards. Right. And so I, the customers were great. Like they were classic, really, really funny group of people, and just like characters, and half of them were thieves as well <laughs> right so because so this, this was still crazy... mid 90s right like 95 ish oh yeah yeah this is 90 summer 94 oh, okay okay and uh i was a great a great introduction into business though because the first thing i learned is make sure you get paid Fair. so <laughs> so it was a really really important lesson that has stuck with me since it's like make sure you get paid sure because those guys, if we, if I didn't do that, if we didn't do that, we wouldn't have been paid, and that's how it would have been. Right. Um, so, yeah. so then, how did you end up um, starting the second business that you were the parts rental, right? 
So that so the second one was classified advertising for construction equipment. So the first one was parts, and then we were we we're actually using faxes to send stuff out, uh, to, to like send a list of what people were looking to buy and sell each night. We'd send this big long faxes, that's and as hilarious. we were getting more customers, the faxes were getting longer. And so that's when I started uh, my inquiries into the information superhighway, <laughs> right? Sure, sure. Because <laughs> I wanted to save on long distance because the long distance was killing us. So it, it, I'd done some math basically and realized, oh, we're going we're gonna to hit a point pretty soon where if we keep adding more customers, it's going to start costing us money like our, because the, the faxes were getting so long. Right. So I, when, you know, this is fall of 94 and so it was pretty apparent that the, the uh, salvage yards weren't going to have internet access <laughs> anytime soon. <laughs> but, um, but related to that, like sort of and then, you know, nearby business was, was the, the sale of complete trucks and also construction equipment. There was a bit of overlap. And construction equipment particularly, we knew that people bought and sold these things over long distances already like this was an existing thing right and this information superhighway was perfect for that because you know these items were expensive and scarce so you know they got sold over long distances we this is a great forum for for matching those up and so that's when when i created that business actually it's created with my my friend scott and we ended up dividing the two companies between us in uh in 95 Right. And so then I ran that out of my parents' basement for the next couple of years until I ended up selling it to the guys that did the auto trader magazines for most of the world, except most of the states, actually. It was just one part of the states. They own that brand. Hmm. Um, but they did classified advertising in like uh, 17 or 18 countries when uh, when they bought GSNet. Right, right. That's GSNet was your business. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. So I'm curious. Awesome name. Yeah. yeah well, really whatever. Everybody had that, right? And <laughs> it you worked. were probably like probably the top listing in Yahoo or Alta Vista or one of the other big oh, search engines at the time. A, yeah, that's another. I mean, that was another story of that was Yahoo. I mean, this is so early on that when I got that listed on Yahoo, there were 800 listings under business, right? <laughs> and I ended up, I got to meet Jerry Yang one time and I was too starstruck at that moment to say, hey, you know what? You might even remember my business. <laughs> 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 but I, yeah, I, I was kind of, didn't see it coming. I just happened to meet him. So I was like, sure. the chance to say that. Sure, so you sold basically GSNet in the kind of 90s internet bubble, is that correct? Yeah, sort of the beginning of the bubble. So if I'd, if I'd sold it a year later, so it was, I sold it in December 98. Right. And it was like an eight-month eight month negotiation, actually. It was a really long negotiation just for such a small business. Um, but, yeah, if I'd sold it a year later, I could have made 10 times as much for sure. But, right. you know, as we know, a, a year and a day or so later, and... Uh, that company was worthless to the world for, for a while. Sure. So, so I did well. You know, as a, someone who borrowed money on my parents' line of credit to start a business, <laughs> it, uh, it worked out well. Sure. So do you have any kind of funny internet stories from the 90s? You always hear about those, or, or, or are you not allowed to mention anything? I have a ton of, I could fill up the rest <laughs> of our time with ridiculous internet stories from the 90s. Do, do was, it a... was such a stupid time. It was absolutely insane, right? Um, funny story, which, you know what, the best one, the best 
one is the one that I told actually at that future web apps on stage sure. and I told you about I could tell that one a little All right. it's, a, it's a good one so so I'd sold this company and I was working for Trader and we're now at uh, I guess it would be January like early January 2000 so before everything's like exploded and there's a there was a convention for construction equipment dealers in Chicago and uh, you know overnight these venture funded um competitors popped up like literally over it was in december there were no competitors that were venture funded yeah i'd heard of it all and then january comes and these guys show up at this conference and they bought most of the space of the convention floor and they're like high roll and kind of you know so one of the two companies that were the sort of main ones that that uh, were in that space arranged like a secret meeting with me late at night like, <laughs> come back yeah <laughs> this is awesome like, it's a secret meeting late at night and so i'm meeting with this this one guy's like english but lives in san francisco and the other two are like harvard mbas they're his like harvard mba wingmen and uh, like the the english guys the the classic you know dave mcclure hustler guy but he's a high-end hustler like he's good and uh and they off they, they want me to come and work for them was the like that's what the meeting is all about and they don't want to buy the business they actually just want me to come and work for them they just want to poach me as as uh i don't know just to, to employ me right as a product manager basically and uh and it was just such a random i, I did not see this coming at all like well i don't know exactly what they wanted to meet for and uh and so they they, they lay out an offer for me of, um, you know, a salary, like a really good salary, almost double what I was making. And they would fly me down to San Francisco every three weeks um, for a week, and then I'd just come back. And, and then they also had this huge signing bonus, though, of, of uh, options in this business. Right. And so they're, they're explaining to me, you know, I, I went to business school, so I knew what options were and how, how it worked. But, uh, but they're saying, you know, these options, they could be worth $10, $20 million. And this is my best poker face ever. I was like, well, that's, that's nice, but $2 million cash would be better. <laughs> <laughs> totally like, yeah, no, I wouldn't. Not interested in that cash. And so the, the crazy part was they came back to me like, yeah, okay yeah we could do that <laughs> and you know inside i'm and again i'm like cool as a cucumber in this negotiation sure but the crazy part was i knew that they actually had the money because they'd been like throwing around so much money in different things and but they were as you can imagine making offers like this it was one of those ridiculous internet companies like it was the it was the pets.com of the construction equipment industry sure so they they were just throwing away money. They had no business model that would ever work. It was just completely stupid. And so I had this, this sort of conundrum after that. I'm like, that's a lot of money, $2 million cash. I could just, you know, I had a non-compete, but I thought I could figure out a way out of that. I could buy it out or negotiate sure. out of it, whatever. Like I, I could make that go away. But what I really struggled with though is you know, I'd built a business, I'd built the relationships in the industry. And if I just 
turn my back on all of that now to go and work for these super flaky guys? Am I going to be painted with the super flaky brush the right. rest of my life? Because I was like 27 years old, right? I'm like, or yeah, 27, 28 years old. And I thought, I've got a long career ahead of me. You know, I've got this offer, an offer like this once. I'll probably get it again if I play my, you know, if I don't, if I don't flake out now, I have a good career ahead of me. That's what I felt like. That my my own sort of moral compass was saying, you know, don't don't do it. And so I didn't do it. But it's, so that's the story I told in Vegas. But no. what I loved actually was I would told you that story like at breakfast that day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. And your and your line was, "What if it was 50? <laughs> I don't remember saying that, but I probably said something it smart. It was so good. That. <laughs> oh, it was such, it was the perfect question. Like, yeah, you got me. <laughs> it was 50. That's a very different struggle. Well, to be fair, $50 million, you'd never have to work in pretty much any industry again. And you could pretty yeah. much do whatever you want. So it doesn't really yeah. matter, right? So all of my like high mindedness there kind of. It's tough. Like I, I, so I give people a hard time. Well, I mean, you know, I talked about Mark Cuban earlier. I mean, Mark Cuban would have been in that boat really. Like he, he sold some. I have never heard him talk about the story. I don't really know much about him, but, but you know, he sold a, you know, video streaming thing for a billion dollars that was shelved like three months later, right? Like, yep. or whatever the story was. It was like almost immediately afterwards. And I mean, it's kind of ridiculous on the one hand, but can you blame him, right? Like, it's not his fault that somebody offered way too much for this thing. Yeah, he sold it, sure. No, fair. But, if, if somebody offered me billions of dollars yeah. for anything I'm doing, I'm going to sign over them. You're right? Out. And I think yeah. majority of people are in the same boat. So it's like, love him or yeah. hate him, it doesn't really matter because anybody yeah. that makes fun of him would do the exact same thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, my situation was a little bit different because it was, it was kind of weird because they were – they were just hiring me away. And sure. I, I had yeah, that, that whole feeling of like going to compete with the thing that I'd created was was a weird dynamic. Well, but, and a, a couple anyway. million bucks is a lot different, right? Like you could It bought you, a lot. It does back then though. And <laughs> you could probably you could probably span it out the rest of your life if you didn't, you know, buy a yacht or something. But uh, yeah. you know, it's not like it could be retirement money, but it's not guaranteed. To, to ride the rest of your life out, right? You basically need to still yeah. work at some point. So I get why you did it. And I've turned down things in the past too just because it just didn't feel right or got reason. And it wasn't even about the money. It's just like if something feels wrong and you're just like, I'm not going to like this or it doesn't feel right yeah. and you turn it down, it totally makes sense. I get that. Yeah. So well, maybe let's talk about kind of what Mailout is and why you started it because I'm assuming you started Mailout right after Trader, right? Bought... Uh, yeah, well, there's there's about five months actually in between where I was kind of deciding what to do next. Okay. Um, so you know the the bubble had burst and it was time to to make things uh, reasonable again. And and in that process, I decided like, okay, let's take the most expensive person off of this salary chart. <laughs> so I laid myself off, which was fun. Um, and then so I was thinking through things to do, uh, you know, what to do with my life basically. Sure. And one of the things that, that came up or one of the things that we did with GSNet was to create an email newsletter and it was incredibly effective. Like it worked really, really, really well for driving traffic and, and helping generate you know, 
sure. uh, sales on there. Well, it still does. Um, to be fair, it still does. Oh yeah, it, it, it's it's still like phenomenal. Um, and so I knew that this email newsletter thing was really great, but it was also a gigantic pain in the ass to set up. Sure. So you know, this is back in the dot com bubble when everything was either free or a hundred thousand dollars. Those were the two price points of everything. Right. So the hundred thousand dollar thing was way too much money. We spent. Uh, we just had developers that at the time we could pay like thirty thousand dollars, and so we had we developed our own email newsletter for a lot less than that, and but it was still a big pain in the ass to to do, and there were elements of it that were really surprising, like all the balance management, all the list management stuff. So from that experience, I knew okay, this is a really this creates a lot of value, but the average business is nowhere close to being able to set this up themselves. There aren't really tools out there at the time um, that were that were available, and but I, my thought was, you know, tools will come pretty soon for this, mm-hmm. and and this is kind of, you know, what we call SaaS software, software as a service. I think we call them application service providers back then or whatever, but uh, yeah, they didn't really exist so much. But I kind of thought, well, the generalist one, like the tools that will be the uh, software for everybody. That'll be a really competitive space, but I wanted to to go sort of more in the vertical markets and work with with people that I knew in vertical markets to to tailor this service to to those industries, and and so that that was the initial vision of mailout. So we created industry mailout. We created uh, advisor mailout. Um, we created Groupy Corral for starving musicians, which was fun. <laughs> that was basically a charity, but it was good. Uh, I got some fun stories out of that too, like just getting to hang out with musicians and do fun things, like go to musician hockey tournaments and play hockey, which is awesome. But um, but anyway, yeah, that was the vision of it. And now we're just mail out. We now we're mailout.com. Yeah, you guys we, rebranded we more, recently. Yeah, yeah, we did a rebrand because I actually never did get mailout.com initially. I, I slept on it for some stupid reason. Right. Instead of just registering the domain when it was available and the next morning it was gone. That's so 14 years. Yeah, 14 years later, I finally got the domain. Nice, nice. So yeah. who did Steven do the rebrand or, or who did the design of that? Uh, we worked with Plum Heavy to do the, right. the identity. Okay. Um, so it's a company in... In Edmonton, the marketing agency, they did great work. They used to just be down the hall from us way, way back when, like 10 years ago. Right. And they've since sort of branched out. But, uh, but they, did, they did a great job of that. Um, and we worked with uh, a company called Fuse in Vancouver to, to build the site. Right. Um, yeah. No, that's awesome. We wanted to focus our internal resources just on, on what we're doing. Because actually bigger than, for us anyways, bigger than the, the rebrand was – the, the launch of our tools to be able to create mail outs, like to create these emails to be sent out. Right. Uh, so we did a lot of work on that and it's top notch. So we've got a, we've got a system that it, for, for creating emails and email newsletter templates, even that is, you know, best in class. So we're excited sure. about that. Sure. No, that's awesome. And I, I think what's interesting about mail out is you guys aren't, well, you're not really going after like the mass market. You guys have targeted niche markets that you're going after. And I think that's yeah. what's interesting about that. Do you maybe want to talk about kind of how you found those niche markets and, you know, how you're competing with the the huge guys that just kind of go for everybody under the sun? 
Well, yeah, like for for mail out, you know, we weren't sort of we weren't a venture funded thing off the bat. Like we we're a bootstrap business, and so so part of and we started it in two thousand one when when everything on the internet sucked, right? So right. so it was it was hard harder slugging back then. Um, but you know, we built what I like to call like a real business. So we had to make money. Sure. And part of that was sort of following. You know, you, you kind of follow who who signs up. Like the, the part of the, the what I liked about Mela was the fact that that everybody who used the product kind of promotes it in a way, because you know people receiving it would say, "Oh, this is cool. How did they do that?" And they, you know, one way or another, or look at the name at the bottom, or follow the links, or whatever. That just look at the URLs and things to figure out, "Oh, it's from this Mailout company." Um, and then they sign up themselves. And and that speculation I had before I started it turned out to be true that's basically how we've gotten all our customers between that and people changing jobs that's that's how we've done it we're actually terrible at marketing other than that which is funny but uh <laughs> but anyway so, so that was part though. of how it grew yeah but also just the the way that we are so there's myself and and john and mike are my two partners on this and like we we don't like spam basically we're really we we hate spam as much as anybody else or maybe even more so actually. And so when we, when we, when we would choose customers or when the customers would come, we, we've said no to as many customers or more over the years as we have. Yes, because we have a real sensitivity to sending spam. And, and so we, we kind of, part of that is, is, you know, basically the cost of the customer ongoing. Sure. That when is somebody sending when somebody sends spam, it costs us. Like we have to deal with this wake of, you know, blacklists and all these like miserable things. So our customers that we tended to like over time have been communicators as opposed to marketers. Sure. So we end up dealing with a lot of universities and governments and banks and things where they're sending emails to a list of people who want to or have to receive them. Sure. So, they're not trying to sell something typically it's more, although we do have people that, that sell things. Um, but our, our real, like where we do really well is these typically big organizations with lots of small lists, lots of sort of disparate accounts and it's communications people that are sending the emails as opposed to marketers, which is a, a subtle difference, but it, it really, you know, in terms of the, the longevity of a customer, they, our churn rates are incredibly low and the cost of our customers afterwards is zero, basically. No cost of goods sold, basically, sure. um, which is nice. No, that's awesome. I, I think that's what's interesting to me is like you basically have a market and it's doing really well and you're actually making money. And I think that's what a lot of startups kind of forget about is they need to make money at some point. And you've been making yeah. money at Mailout for well over a decade. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's, it's very different when you have to make money, right? Like yeah. we didn't really have a choice. So, so we, you know, we didn't have this, uh, I mean, there's a whole other set of problems if you're on that treadmill of, or in that path of, and you raise your angel round and you raise your seed round and you're, you know, on and on and, you know, get into the VC world and you do each, each different round of funding and so on. And in those cases, they're trying to show growth, um, 
and eventually figure out how to make some money off of it. But, um, yeah, as we know, it's, it's things don't always work out as you plan in the future, <laughs> when you, sure. especially when you're talking about like, you know, when growth sort of levels off, you know, can you actually make money with this thing? Uh, that's a, that's pretty tough. Sure. So do and, you have, Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no. Well, I, I think a lot of businesses, a lot of young, young startups, it, it, it's in a really competitive space right now. We're, we're in a different kind of bubble than the dot-com bubble of the, you know, late nineties, 2000, but it's, uh, it's still a bubble, I think, but I've been, I mean, I've been talking about how the, the talking about the demise of this bubble, like when it's going to burst for like three years now that it felt like it's been imminent and I've been dead wrong, but uh, but I think it is going to, I think it is going to burst eventually here and, and people are going to have to come back to, to building businesses that, that do eventually make money. Sure. So do you have any advice on how to kind of build a business that kind of from the beginning that, that can be profitable or start making some money? Well, I love subscription model businesses because of the predictability to the future. So I, I love that. So like Mailout and Inkdit, which I haven't talked about Inkdit yet. Sure, both we'll get to that in a second. Subscription model. They're both subscription model businesses. So every month, the the customers, you know, people who are paying, are paying a, a certain amount of money, and and it, it creates a a predictability to being able to plan, which is wonderful. The the downside of that, and actually the the first business I did too, the the classified advertising one was the same deal. The downside, though, is it's super lean for the for, for a long time. So you have to be willing to eat a lot of craft dinner and ramen and whatever else <laughs> to to get through until you can afford some ketchup for your craft dinner and, <laughs> and move on. But eventually, that uh, you know flywheel effect of of having added more and more of these subscriptions to your revenue base eventually it starts to to have its own momentum and and uh and that that part is wonderful so you have to be willing to to basically pay money to go to work for for quite a while early on so when i say that it's got to make money right away it's not like a consulting business type of thing where you got to be making hours like you know billable hours right away that's not necessarily a great way to to start things but you you have to be willing to be very lean for quite a while or able willing and able to be lean for a while to create something like that that's going to work out um so you have to be patient um and you have to you have to make hard choices as you go along because there are lots of things where uh customers will will come along and be like well you know your product's almost perfect for us but we need these things right right be like it'll be like the big deal is you know, they'll, they'll be double your revenue if you take them on as a customer. You know, it's particularly early on, this will happen, right? It's like big customer comes along. But you would have to sink in a whole bunch of time doing customization for just that client. Right. That's always the, it's the worst. And so that's the one, that's the situation where sometimes, you know, but frankly, the, the, the wrong thing to do is to take that deal in terms of the, the long term. But if it means that you can survive another month, sometimes you just have to do it. <laughs> so there's, it's an art, really, of making these decisions sure. to say, ah, I don't really want to do this. This isn't a smart thing to do. 
uh, in terms of the long run, but I can see we have to we have to make this decision at this point in time. We have to take this business or go under. Yeah, so, fair enough. You know, in that yeah. kind of scenario, you do it. But in every other scenario where it's not going to take you down, like if you don't absolutely have to take that money, don't do it. You have to stay the course of building your product that is uh, something that is scalable that a lot of people can use, so that uh, you know you can be efficient in your your development and all the particularly like the weight of what you've developed that you have to support later on. Sure. That's the that's the kicker of those really customized things or you know, features for just one customer. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And and that's that's actually really good advice. And I, I think it's so easy to say like, oh, I have this big customer and we need to just pump this out as quick as possible. And if you quite don't make it or, you know, you have to support it. And I think people forget about the maintenance and support of things long term. Support is the support is I mean, it has so much to do with the lifetime value of your customers and so on. Right. Like if you if you are supporting lots of little things for every customer that are that specific to those customers that you, you can't scale, you can't, uh, I mean, it just, it costs a lot to keep them. Sure. So the amount of money that you make off of them is, is really severely diminished and it, it, it affects your ability. Then if you're supporting these things, typically this, the same people who are supporting them or, or updating them as you go along are the people who would be otherwise developing new stuff. And so you're taking people off of new development just to keep the bowl of spaghetti together, right? <laughs> sure. No, I think that's really good advice. So maybe let's cover kind of what is Inkedit and why you started it. Sure. So Inkedit is very simply, it's electronic signatures. And typically on things you think of as forms, um, they're usually contracts, but they're, they're more for things you think of as forms. So, uh, like waiver forms and for uh, model releases and you know things like that is how people tend to use it. But it's a it's a tool, it's a platform for being able to create um, documents to be signed electronically. And what's different about Inkedit is well, a couple of things. One is that we we didn't want to just make eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper because the, the, the whole idea is, you know, we're not printing these things anymore. So let's not be bound by the restrictions of a piece of paper. Sure. Or trying to represent a piece of paper, especially on like a mobile phone. It's yeah. PDF terrible, is terrible on a phone. It's terrible. Like, and there's, there's no way around it because the nature of a PDF is to reproduce an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. So you, by its nature, cannot make it mobile responsive. Right, you just you can't do that, or you're breaking what it's supposed to do. And so instead of trying to do that, we said let's let's make HTML5 documents that you can sign, and open this up to like a whole other world of stuff. So in terms of our roadmap, that it, it opens up so much more. So that's really cool. But the, what is it really interesting about Inkedit to me is the, for lack of a better word, social graph that it creates. So instead of just thinking about a document that is signed as a snapshot in time, just optimizing the signing of this thing, what Inkedit does is it, it uses those documents that we sign as the, a, like a, a point between two parties, like this sort of path between two parties where the parties to that agreement 
have property and they have, you know, like when you sign something, you use a real identity. You have to use a real identity. Otherwise right. it's worthless. And so we capture all that kind of information. So we create like the social graph type of thing, but for legal relationships. So whether that's between a company and a person, a person and a person, a company and a company, those, all of that graph gets modeled within this the system that we've created. And what's really powerful is how you can reuse that information. So it's really a lot more convenient to not have to, you know, recreate all like, like when I, when I sign stuff for my kids, for example, for school, right. I, ha- I have to write my name, my address, my phone number four times for like one child's one set of documents. Cause they, you know, they'll take a piece of paper and send it to a bunch of different places yep. and all of the other electronic signature tools, they'll, they'll make it so that you can sign those documents the same way and have the same experience, but just do it electronically on your phone, yep. which kind of speeds things up. But it's like a nominal increase in uh, productivity where we're saying like, okay, well, let's, let's take that and make it so that, that you're not having to do all this rework for anybody, like whether it's the person signing it or whether the person, it's a person collecting all the data off of it. Let's reduce the rework and uh, make it really convenient and the path to that is this builds this social graph which is really cool and powerful sure that's the story of it no i I think that's interesting and and what i found interesting about inkton and and the idea is the fact that you're basically modernizing the contract and you're basically saying i don't really care what screen size you're on we're going to optimize the experience for that screen size so you can sign your kids waiver form or, you know, if you're going quickly on some sort of, uh, you know, weekend trip, whether you're going skiing or snowboarding or, or whatever, mm-hmm. you basically can sign quickly on an iPad or a phone just as you're boarding the bus, right? And you don't really yeah. have to worry about this kind of weird, clunky zoom in, zoom out, pinch to yeah. zoom thing on, you know, your phone. Yeah, there was right? no, there was, there's no hardware constraints. Like it's, it's, you don't have to have a particular device. You don't have to have a, didn't have downloaded an app even, you know, it's, it's a tool that can be used across all the devices that access the, that you use to access the internet. You can sign stuff and that, yeah, it's, that's really powerful and really cool. Sure. No, I think that's awesome. So maybe we can talk a little bit about um, what it's kind of like running a company and startups and, you know, well, I guess mail is, at what point is it not a startup anymore? Like when you're making money, <laughs> yeah. like, cause mail has been around what, 14, 15 years now. Yeah. Well, 2001 is when we started working on it. It's 2015. So 14 yeah. years. Yeah. So oh, is time. it, is it still a startup? Like at what point do you I, go from a startup to a full fledged business? <laughs> I, I don't know. I feel like it's when you start to – when you're making a salary and making money, sure. then it's definitely not a startup anymore. Um, like if you, can, if, you can, if you can post a dividend, if you can actually dividend out something and you're making a salary, yeah, things are definitely not in the startup phase anymore. Um, but because a startup is more – I don't know. I think the word startup should apply it should have some other connotations other than just being a new business as well like i think startups mean a, a business that can scale as well okay interesting so uh, that's kind of like the one of the connotations of the word that i think is useful to to help distinguish stuff because i mean if you start if if you're starting a 
I don't know, an insurance brokerage. It's, it's a, I mean, it's, it's a good business. There's nothing wrong with it, but I don't think I would use that, that scripter of it. I wouldn't categorize it as a startup. Sure. So. No, yeah. that's fair. And so those early stages, there are some different sort of stages of when you're starting out of like, you know, it starts out just as an idea and then you start to, you know, figure out, okay, is there any, is there anything to this idea? And so you, you do that customer development stuff, um, which I'm not, I'm, I'm not really into this uh, following very precisely, you know, the, you know, Steve Blank customer development or, or, you know, Eric Reese lean startup methodologies and so on. There's, those are good things. They're really good tools generally, but I think people need to use their own brains in these processes too. Sure. A lot of them are recipes to never start. Yeah. I find it's always interesting. People, people seem to try to always follow other people and they they should just try to figure out their own path, right? Like no matter who you follow. And I, I can't remember who said it the best, but basically they're like, look, I'll tell you how I got to where I am, but don't do that because you're not me and you'll never get there if you take exactly the steps that I had because there's no possible way that you could recreate how I got somewhere because we lead two different lives. We have different backgrounds. We're Mm. different experiences. We're probably in different industries, right? Mm. And I always found that kind of fascinating to me. It's like all these like startup books and I'm not saying they're bad. It's just... You know, you like you said, you kind of got to take what you can from those books, but you also need to use your head and figure it yeah. out for yourself, right? There is no, like, check these well, boxes and you're going to be successful. Yeah, like every every business book, you have to take it with a grain of salt. My, in my view, sure. most business books, you, you get... 80% of the value out of by reading the cover it's the title of the <laughs> title of the book oh, permission marketing right it's like oh that's a really great idea <laughs> the concept makes a lot of sense um, way to go Seth Godin that's, that's really ingenious fair enough um, but yeah they, uh, there's there's even nuances of the, the businesses that you, that you need to figure out like that sort of you know the lean lean processes for example like they're really they're amazing for iterating on on an idea once you've had it, but it doesn't really help you with the big grand vision in the first place. Right. Which when you're doing something, when you're, when you're heading into, you know, complete uncharted waters, it's, it's, there's some nuance to that. You can't just be like iterating on one little tiny facet of it necessarily. Right. Like maybe you can, if if your great big idea is, you know, a search engine box, <laughs> sure, <right? laughs> which is pretty awesome, right? <laughs> pretty great. But you know, small little rapid iterations on on the one thing, it doesn't get you to um, figuring out how to map the planet and have cars driving around by themselves, right? Like that's you know, you don't just get there by short little iterations. Fair enough. Yeah, no, Greg. I, I think that's that's really good advice. And sadly, we're out of time. So maybe, kind of in closing, maybe let's mention where people can find Mailout and Inkedit and yourself online. Sure. Uh, so my cell phone. Yeah, call me Drek. So <laughs> Mailout.com for uh, if you have a need to send email newsletters, and Inkedit.com for electronic signatures, especially for forms. Uh, it's a platform for everything from like HR stuff to sales to whatever you're doing. Uh, whenever you've got lots of things to be signed. Sure. And for myself, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn, uh, Greg, G-R-E-G-G, 
old ring, O-L-D-R-I-N-G, like an old ring on your finger. Uh, that gets you, that finds me. So I'm Perfect. Greg Oldring on Twitter and LinkedIn. Perfect. And I'll post those in the show notes so people can go there directly. Great. Yeah, and I'd love to hear from people too. That'd be really fun. Yeah. Well, thanks, Greg, for doing the show. And uh, this has been really good. And well, as always, I'm, we'll keep in touch because, well, we've kept in touch for a number of years. So Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, thanks, Kevin. I really appreciate you having me on the show. It's yeah, really no, fun. no problem. Uh, thanks again for doing this, and we'll talk soon. Cheers. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can visit past shows at buildingthefutureshow.com. If you're going to the Startup Expo on February 16th and 17th in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and want to record an episode, please contact me. The music for the show is by Electric Mantra. Check him out at electricmantra.com. Until next time, keep building the future.